Hello, everybody. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm back again for another Buddhist Geeks episode and happy to be joined today by my dear friend, Lama Karma. Karma, Hello. thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Vince. Yeah, good to have you again on the show. It's funny because you've been on the show before, but that was a sort of recorded talk from the last Buddhist Geeks conference that you gave. So this is our first time actually going back and forth kind of in conversation like this. Yeah, yeah. Although we've had many conversations prior to this. Uh, <laughs> None of them recorded or none of them recorded and then made public. <laughs> so I'm excited, uh, excited for this. And uh, yeah, I wanted to share a little bit about your background and then let you fill in the, fill in the rest of the story. Um, so I, I really know you, one, first of all, as a kind of uh, committed yogi and Vajrayana practitioner. Um, I think when we first met, probably it's been, I don't know, four years ago yeah. or so that you were pretty fresh out of a three-year retreat, traditional three-year retreat. And then just prior to that, you'd done another three-year retreat. So you seemed like you'd spent most of your 20s in retreat and were just kind of fresh out and kind of, you know, working on integration and um, shifting gears toward a, a kind of different lifestyle, um, you know, slightly I different. I capture my 20s. <laughs> That no, no. See that I think is part of the reason we became such good friends, <laughs> because I was pretty much in the same position. Um, and I, I should also mention that you've got a beautiful retreat center in uh, in Tennessee near Knoxville, the Millerepa Retreat Center. Um, and it's uh, I remember going to visit you out there, and it's such a beautiful piece of land. And um, you're doing some really interesting stuff out there. So for those that want to check it out, um, how would how would people find that retreat center online? Uh, yeah, it's just mocd.org or Miller Retreat Center, Tennessee. Yeah. Okay, great. Definitely check it out. It's one of those beautiful, rare places where you can really just kind of disconnect and, and, and be immersed in nature. Um, so, yeah, so a little bit of background for this conversation. So, uh, Karma, you and I um, have gotten to know each other first as friends and colleagues and fellow admirers of uh, Buddha Dharma way. And um, I think it's, it's what's interesting to me when I reflect on our kind of the similarities of our path and the differences are that we both kind of pursued in different ways, like kind of doing the yogi, the yogi path, um, you in the sort of traditional Vajrayana three-year retreat model and me in the sort of insight meditation, go on retreats and then come back, go on retreats, come back. One teacher called it the schizophrenic <laughs> meditation model. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like we both have this commitment to st keeping one foot in tradition and one foot sort of out of tradition or, or at least being critical of tradition. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't know if you'd say this is true, but I experience you as being, um, somewhat more traditional than me in the sense that you've spent more time immersed in your tradition and, you know, seven years on retreat is, it's no, you know, it's no small thing to, to go that deep into studying and exploring and practicing with inside of a tradition. Yet you also can take a step back and look at the tradition critically and skeptically and, and you do. And I really appreciate that. Would, would you say that's accurate? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And something that I often uh, quote is uh, Thomas Merton saying that you know, he's a, a Trappist monk, Christian tradition. Um, and he said that he lives a life of rebellion and obedience. You know, he, lives, he lives his life between rebellion and obedience. 
Um, so yeah, no, I think it's a really important thing, uh, place to be just in general now with the, the, the coming of the Dharma to the West, especially. Okay, great. That's, uh, I love that line. Um, okay. So I wanted to, you know, for people that don't know you as well as I do, I want to, you know, hear your story and there's probably lots about your story. I don't know. Um, I also wanted to kind of set up the frame for this conversation by saying that, you know, part of what's bringing here is, uh, us here today is to talk about your experience exploring in the jungles of Peru and elsewhere, um, the practice of, um, using ayahuasca as a sacred medicine, as a healing agent, as a, uh, I don't know if you'd use these terms, but as a spiritual catalyst sure, and, yeah. and talking about what that experience is like and, you know, it, and, and how it intersects and overlaps with your experience, um, as a Vajrayana practitioner, you know, what, how you're making sense of those things, given your deep grounding and background uh, in the Vajrayana tradition. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Mm-hmm. So maybe could you start with the Vajrayana and then and then maybe like we can shift over to your experience with um, with ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah, and they're definitely connected, and I guess that's that's really the point of all this. Um, so just to start, that um, you know, I was gra- I was in college and suffering miserably, as most people in college are who are looking for you know some, something something to really to get behind, you know, some sort of truth. And I ended up going to India looking for a teacher and a retreat and ended up back in New York um, and went into a traditional three-year retreat um, with uh, Lama Norla and Pichet at Kajitu Kincholing. And I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know Tibetan or the teacher or the tradition really that much. Uh, I just dove in. Um, but then after... Why did you do that? Why did you just dive in without without knowing any of that stuff? Well, it was... I mean, it was a it was the product of a, a long and really painful uh, search, um, where you know it began with a, a very deep depression and and desperation, and then and finding you know the clues along the way, um, especially with you know, studying Madhyamaka that helped a lot, and then starting to meditate, and then and then going to India. I, I met with so many amazing teachers um, of all the lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and by the by the time I came out of that whole thing, and then went to Ireland and, and Germany, but after I came out of that, um, I just didn't have any doubt about the way things were unfolding. Um, I had just really set a very clear intention and and a heartfelt sincerity about what I wanted, and then I kept being um, uh, met with opportunities that really resonated with that. And at a certain point, you just you start to run, you're walking, you start to run and at a certain point, you just jump, you know, because it's, it just is right. If that makes sense. Gotcha. <laughs> I, w- I would never I mean, recommend it to anyone though. <laughs> you definitely should not jump into a three retreat, not knowing the teacher and, <laughs> and all the rest. <laughs> in, in, unless it's somehow uh, the path unfolds you in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, I guess if you can, if you can trust and, and, and I was lucky, I don't, have any uh, doubt about that doesn't always work out so well but yeah anyway so then um and then went back in and then you know felt deeply touched and transformed but really felt like sort of half broken at that point and um really needed more time and so went in again and um and then at a certain point just realizing it coming up against a very serious obstacle and, and really falling apart that was precipitated by just doing too much 
practice, you know, yogic practice, pushing myself way too hard and my body gave out. And then it was like a house of cards, like just the whole edifice of what I was doing and, and the, you know, the struggle for perfection and, you know, the typical, maybe it's a male thing, especially, but the typical, you know, young man's practice, I think Jack Cornfield calls it, you know, you just put it, you give it all you have and hope that effort will get you somewhere. Um, and it does, you know, for, it, it got me pretty far, but then it was just coming up against, um, you know, the, the facade of all of that and really recognizing that I was, you know, pursuing a type of self-harm uh, in the interest of perfection. And um, so really um, came up against that and, and then also turned uh, a critical eye on the tradition itself because of seeing how that environment really enabled me to um, to tell myself that story, and to you know to use this type of macho, effort-oriented, goal-oriented approach um, that really just burns people out if if you're not careful, and especially if you have um, trauma or you know if if you have some sort of unresolved uh, psychological issues, it'll it, it's <laughs> it's not always a good idea to to enter into that kind of um, practice, you know. And so I started to become really critical and pursued a lot of um, psychotherapy, psychological approaches, um, and um, and then eventually came around again. Uh, and then shortly after that, um, went to went to Peru to do a, a dieta in ayahuasca. Um, and at that point, I felt a lot more, I felt in, in touch and in tune with the tradition once again, but still very... Um, out of balance, uh, especially with respect to like the feminine and the nurturing qualities of things, and uh, really went to um, into that ayahuasca context with the intention for healing that. Um, so yeah, nice. And I, I know I know too that you also spent some time, you know, several months uh, doing another kind of retreat um, that was probably after. I'm guessing it was after your time in Peru. That was also, it sounded like it was very fruitful. I don't know if you want to, yeah, that's well, part just, of the story. It was but. really like a month, yeah, a month after that, I went to another three retreat. Um, I was intending to participate every six months on and off and then, you know, continue to try to live a normal person's life outside of that. But um, so I ended up doing six months and uh, a lot of that was darkness practice. So in, in mm -hmm. dark retreat, and it was a very direct um link to the space of ayahuasca ceremony um in many ways in many ways and it, and, and it was very much a, a continuation of of that same healing process uh and a lot has to do with in you, when you're in the dark you can't read you can't do ritual you can't do yoga you can't just like run this vajrayana engine like a crazy person you have to just do nothing and and relax and release and for me that was really profoundly um restorative and healing and yeah so yeah, very similar to to the jungle space. Okay, interesting. And I, I, I sort of I seem to recall too that you're you're talking about um, one of the teachers you're working with a Fr a Frenchman who was teaching some form of practice that came from or descended from a a, a female teacher as well. Right. Is that, is that yeah. Accurate? So so my original retreat was in Karmakaju and Shankvakaju. Uh, and then the second retreat was in the Nyingma lineage. Um, but the, so the Shangpokaju is a, you know, a really unique uh, transmission uh, and was in, in the Lamadeni in France. And my teacher, 
Amanola, they both are, were, their teacher was Kalu Rinpoche, and, um, and he was the primary holder of that. And it's just a very unique and beautiful lineage, and I was uh, training in France in order to, um, to practice that. And so, yeah, and it originated with two female yoginis, uh, Sukhasiddhi and Naguma. Okay, interesting. I remember hearing about Naguma from uh, Sarah Harding. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So just that that seems somehow related to the whole theme you're talking about, like of the fe- uh, sort of the feminine um, oh, for sure, yeah. quality of the, of the path. Okay, so bring us to Peru. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's it like in Peru? I've, I've never been, but I have a number of friends, yourself included, who spend a lot of time there practicing. And it, I mean, one of the things I was struck by hearing people's firsthand reports is just that it doesn't sound much different from a hardcore retreat in the sense that it's very much of a committed space of practice and, mm-hmm. and people are really going deep uh, while they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, when you, first thing you said, when you said, tell me about Peru, it is a, it's this really special country because the impact of colonialism wasn't so drastic to have uprooted the indigenous wisdom and indigenous traditions. You know, Colombia has a little bit left, but Peru is really strong. And so, you know, there's a lot of people going to Peru now to to be touched by and practice um, the indigenous traditions. And, and ayahuasca is one of the main um, uh, aspects of that, you know, one of the main lineages of, of that indigenous tradition. Uh, and, I, and I would really say it is a wisdom lineage, um, and it's been preserved for thousands of years, just like Buddhism, and, and much longer, actually, much much longer than Buddhism. But mm. if, if you uh, take a historical point of view, but yeah, so then going into the jungle, you know, it's like, it's like stepping back into Eden, uh, in a certain sense, because it's before the fall, <laughs> you know, and not to romanticize it, but there's um, something really unique about, um, you know, old growth forests, for instance, or, um, you know, a, a type of culture and practice that has been preserved in its original context for so long, you know, you can really enter a time machine uh, of sorts. Hmm. And then was there like a particular teacher community or how did you, how did you connect up with, um, with the community that you ended up working with? Yeah. So it was, it was through a friend who um, is very closely tied into the Tibetan tradition. Uh, and she, uh, she connected and she connected me. And so, okay. yeah. Nice. And, and, and there is, a, I should say there's a lot, it's sort of under, you know, in the closet in many ways, but there are a lot of Tibetan Buddhist practitioners who um, have done this, right? Have, have gone from a Tibetan context into you know, ayahuasca ceremonies. It, like, have you noticed that that in particular, those two, or, or yeah. is it just, okay, well, it's, it's everybody, but you know, that's kind of the corner, my weird corner of the Buddhist universe. And it's just interesting to see how many people have actually done that. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. That's, I feel like in some ways, part of the purpose of this series has been to kind of bring some of that out uh, a little bit, or just to kind of highlight that that's true. Um, and it's, it's one of the interesting things of how long these kind of cross fertilizations have been happening, actually. I think it's pretty kind of, relatively recent with ayahuasca, but, and, you know, as you've been showing, you know, psychedelic use, um, has a lot of overlaps, obviously, and with Fadriana communities, uh, for sure. Um, and that, that's definitely the case, but I think that looking at ayahuasca in particular is a, is a little bit, it, it, it casts a different light on that overlap um, because it 
I think it's more rigorous in many ways. Um, and so it, it can dialogue with the tradition uh, in a deeper way. Okay. Interesting. So, so, okay. You're in the jungle, you're in Peru, you're in Eden, as it were, uh, old growth forests. Um, what's, what was the actual dieta like? What was the, uh, yeah, I'll call so, it retreat. Yeah. Dieta. So, which means like to diet or to, to restrict your diet, to maximize the effect of whatever particular, uh, plant medicine you're dieting. And in the one, in the, the, the dieta that I did, many, different people were doing different plants um, in addition to ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is the main um, the focus, but then everybody gets a different supplementary kind of um, medicine. You know, some for, for beginners like I was, um, you're given something called bobanzana, which is a it's a mild sedative, um, and it also um, helps to dissolve the boundary between waking and dreaming. So, you know, it's more like waking, waking dream. Um, and that's like an underlying current. And I think they do it just to keep people stable. Um, it definitely opens a dimension, that dreamlike dimension, but it also, um, I think, is a safeguard for not um, you know, overworking you know, that, the mind in certain ways. Okay, interesting. Uh, and this is about as much herbal lore as I know, but it, that reminds me of, um, uh, of, a, of an herb called uh mugroot that's mugwort. here yeah mugwort yeah thank you yeah, that's much herbal <laughs> mug mugroot yeah mugwort it's got a similar kind of quality yeah. to it that i found cool okay interesting and so so you're doing the dieta and then and then other kind of ceremonies like uh ayahuasca ceremonies that happen i guess usually in the evening right yeah it's it's different um for different people but Typical framework was that it was one one night of ceremony and then a day of integration and recovery. And then the next day, that night, you do another ceremony and you end up doing five ceremonies. Um, and then I actually asked for uh, asked to do it on the off day, uh, just on my own, uh, just to see what that experience was like. And also in the during the day. And so I did an extra ceremony just on my own. Um, but typically that's the on and off kind of structure. And it really allows for um, stability and integration. Okay, cool. And then, yeah, what, what was it like? <laughs> <laughs> that's a big question, but... <laughs> um, yeah, well, like, for the first ceremony, I remember uh, the Corindero, who's really sweet, um, strong man. Uh, he, he, and everybody knew him. I was the only new person and also he went around and was like, everyone's done this before. And like I was, I was like embarrassed and didn't say anything. And then he repeated it. And then I was like, I raised my hand and said, no, this is my first time. And then <laughs> everyone's kind of like, really? Like, how did you get here? <laughs> and uh, then uh, he said, well, it's a good place to be for your first time. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole, it, it's such a rich, um, rich context, rich environment. It's hard to, to really generalize. but. Um, you really have to tell the whole story and it's, um, it's quite magical, but to cut to the chase, you know, I, I just didn't, I didn't feel like it was hitting me for a while and I just kept drinking uh, and going up for more. Um, and then at a certain point, I think it was because it was my first time. I just hadn't, hadn't opened that door yet. And then when the door opened, it was like, I just was like laid out on my ass, um, just <laughs> totally blown away. Um, and, uh, I think I had too much for sure, but it wasn't, it wasn't, well, it was, it was a state where if that were my, 
day-to-day reality, suicide would be a, a very real um, consideration. Not because it was only so painful, um, but because you know the mind is so present to itself that its insanity is unavoidable. Um, so, and and then at the same time, you know, there is clarity. And so, I think without without a without training, uh, without serious training, um, that kind of place um, could be overwhelming and and uh, and uh, risky, dangerous for sure. But for me, it was just um, this this simultaneity of of insanity and and openness, and um, then then coming out of that and into that in different ways that are. You know, typical for a ceremony, a lot of deep emotional um, transformation and, and, and purging, and um, uh, this very unique um, ayahuasca experience that people have of a, a complete life review. It's like at the moment of death, for instance, you see your whole life flash before your eyes. It's very much like dying, uh, and and similarly, it's very much a, a complete and total review of your life. Um, that is that is in an instance, right? It, uh, it's all present, and you can see the totality of your self-deception and the totality of your potential, and you know all of that all at once. Um, and um, you no, know, it's just it's, it's very special. But I think the most the most uh, profound thing that I took away from that first experience was that um, everything that I have ever known, everyone I had known, um, all the stories, all of the memories, um, the just everything that had a name was gone. Um, it, it, not that I, it was it was stolen from me, but it just became transparent. Um, and then, especially my teachers, um, everything they had taught me and all of the you know, tremendously intimate moments we had shared, it was all just gone. Um, and yet, at the same time, there was an enduring presence um, that, you know, you, you could always decide to put a name and a story on it, but in and of itself, it was just um, presence. Um, and it was, it, was, it was the presence of another that was profoundly um, caring, loving, uh, and, uh, and devoted, you know. And so that was still there, and that's all I came out of it with. Everything from there, it was like starting existence anew. You know, you just if you wanted to put the floor there, you created a floor and stepped on it. If you wanted to say a word, you had to, you know, stir it up out of the some sort of depth of unknowing. You know, everything was completely fresh, um, uh, and at the same time, was there was continuity of that presence. Um, and so I came out of it with that, and then I was like, "Oh, this is a good idea." You know, that was <laughs> seriously rough, but um, hmm. uh, that was really profoundly uh, affirming of all of the practice I had done. Um, you know, deeply affirmed the Dharma uh, in a way that I, I've never um, had outside of that context, uh, outside of the context of sitting with one of my teachers. Um, it, and and so ayahuasca became a teacher, and that's. That's really, I think, a good thread to follow through all of this is that um, ayahuasca is a, a very, uh, a, a, not only sentient, but uh, can be understood as a wisdom being that is um, totally dedicated to uh, helping and, and waking up uh, whoever wants to have that relationship. So. Okay, wow. So there's 
there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> hmm. So you, you, you mentioned that there was a way in which it sort of reaffirmed your relationship to Dharma. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's definitely been, I think a theme so far in the series of kind of recognizing well, I, the way I was thinking about it, as you described it, is in the way that I experienced often working with say psilocybin was very much an experience of like, Oh, in some ways I'm going into this experience. I'm not, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely like, uh, I don't know this is the right word, but it, it feels like it's like, it's a test of, of my, of my capacity to, you know, to, to be with whatever comes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And in that sense felt all, always like a, a kind of re either reaffirmation of, of my, of my understanding or, or highlighting the ways in which I was deluded. And, mm-hmm. and you, I think you spoke really beautifully to that. Um, you know, seeing the, grandiosity and i had very much had a similar um ex- experience to that of a kind of ODing on psilocybin mm-hmm. that i've shared in the series and, and 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 it was so obvious in in retrospect how the machismo like i'm gonna you know just take this to 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 11 or 12 or 15 or whatever this one goes uh, up to 11 <laughs> yes <laughs> go well past the point of uh what's sane uh-huh. um and, and revealing sort of the insanity on the other side of that. Um, and that's, so yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Could you, maybe could you, could you, could you comment a little bit? I, cause I agree. I agree that it's so important and yet it's, it's um, not something like I would recommend. It's dangerous to too. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, but first this, this, um, this aspect that it's really important to, to understand that there is a, there's a pervasive misunderstanding about the nature of a lot of, um, well, ayahuasca or anything psychoactive, that it is like a hallucinogen, um, that you take a substance and will, as a result of that, um, you know, see things that are not there, right? Um, or experience things that are, um, imaginatory in some way. And that's, and that's true in a certain sense, but what is so important to understand is that the, the substance is removing self-deception. Um, it, it's, it's like plunging you into a state of clarity uh, and openness that you start to see very clearly how you're deceiving yourself and how you're covering that up and how you're trying to avoid that with all whatever. And what the hallucinations are is your own baggage, basically, your own, um, you know, your own karmic inheritance, so to speak, or you know, the, the stuff that you're carrying around that you you're you're letting go of in that experience you're not producing more of it um and so you can produce more of it and that's why this whole thing can get really derailed uh, either because you of lack of concentration and you lose your mind or because you're in to be entertained and you want to have like an interesting Mm. fun experience and therefore you produce more uh hallucination which in intensifies the, the the habit and really doesn't really do anything good. Um, it gives you, maybe you have a fun time and that's worth it, but um, it's not necessarily coherent with the Dharma. Um, anyway, so I, I wanted to say that first. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so, so, yeah, and it, when you are in that experience, just seeing the, the, uh, sometimes we call co-emergence um 
the has different meanings, but one meaning is that confusion and insight arise at the same time or are dependent on one another. Um, and so if you, um, if you have the training, um, and this is getting at what you, what you rose, um, you know, intense experiences are more potentially transformative. They're more intense, they have more energy, you can go deeper, but also much more um, dangerous. And so it, it assumes that you have some training and then you know, context and motivation, all the normal stuff. But um, I think to be plunged into that, like what you were describing, um, you, <laughs> it's good to have some, some um, strength of awareness, right? And also some power of concentration. Because, mm. um, you know, on one hand, if you don't, it'll go really poorly. And if you do, the benefits can be tremendous. Yes. Yes. It, it seemed, it seemed like to me, like the, the time, the time I'll say the time, I mean, there've been other micro moments of this, but the real time that I felt like, uh, I, I was totally in over my head. It was like the, that power of awareness wasn't, I, I was no longer able to notice thoughts as thoughts mm-hmm. and they, they sort of became this, as you said, this intensely overwhelming, um, seeming reality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um that was also kind of crazy mm-hmm. um and you know fortunately i was fortunate enough to kind of fall out of that you know intensity and and believing those thoughts but it took a while you know to kind of remember oh wait these are thoughts <laughs> i can't trust the story yeah fully yeah. um yeah. because the yeah. intensity was so hard right. so high yeah and it's really and this is really the the virtue of Adriana that um, the, with an incredible intensity of conceptual activity, a cacophony basically going on, yes. the cacophony can, is, is co-emergent with a symphony, that at any moment you can turn mm. and look at the cacophony and it's integrated. Uh, and not only is it integrated, it's, it's beautifully integrated. And, you, and not only that, but you are composing, you're, you're co-creating uh, that symphony. And then chaos you know, right back at you, just like slams you in the face, mm. knocks you on your ass. And then you're like, you know, <laughs> this is all in my head. You know, this is all my mind doing all of this. And it can be cacophony, it can be symphony, or it can be total openness, spaciousness, emptiness. Um, and it's all my mind. And not to get rid of one, even. It's like that whole mixture is that's amazing. You know, that's really, it's not that we want to optimize one or compose the best symphony ever. You know, it's just, it's the, it's the total spectrum of that. And then seeing how that is the very way that we can benefit others uh, who, who are in a position of, of chaos uh, and can't see the integration and can't see that their own nature is pure and spacious. Uh, so like at that moment, it's, it's really bodhicitta is born. And both in a relative sense of I'm, I can help people now because of this and in an ultimate sense that there's nothing wrong. It is all in my mind. Um, and you know, if I want to simply train my mind, I can uh, really make the most of this. Hmm. When you're describing that part, part of what comes to mind for me is um, sort of the, some of the descriptions from one of my early meditation teachers who, who, you know, Daniel Ingram. Mm-hmm. And him sort of describing phases of practice that are very uh, 
very much like a cacophony of sensation and vibratory experience that are very, you know, edgy and irritating and complex and broad and spatial, but very confusing and disorienting. And then how that, yeah, how that does and can open up into a more panoramic and um, complete and harmonious, in a certain sense, harmonious mm-hmm. kind of vibratory and spacious experience. But, but also how, and maybe this is, kind of part of relates part, partly to what you're saying, how, you know, going through that experience of cacophony becoming symphony or, you know, disillusionment, be, you know, opening into equanimity, how that isn't the end of the story, but rather it's like the end of that particular um, round through that story. <laughs> it's just, but that somehow continues, it sort of cycles or recurs, you know, it becomes a recursive mm-hmm pattern mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. and that rec- that recursiveness is um in a sense doesn't end it doesn't stop mm-hmm. um so yeah. i don't know that that's part of what brought, brought to mind when you're describing that mm-hmm. um it's kind of reminded me of um the cycles of insight practice yeah and i think the the main if you understand it like you you articulate in terms of recursion um that that opens up you know this this um empty space of awareness like that's where that recursion leads and then what that mm-hmm. what that allows is that um that it's not a progression from um from sort of the difficulty uh of of embodied existence into a, a space that's liberated from that but that those two emerge together um, and this is something that both both fajriana and ayahuasca you know really uh explore deeply is that the very messiness, the very, you know, in ayahuasca, it's like everyone's just barfing everywhere. <laughs> and it's this like total panoramic. Uh, it's like the earth is, is just uh, getting plumbed, you know, like there's just all this stuff moving out of deep tubes in every direction. Uh, of, uh, and it's this profoundly creative and purgative uh, moment where it's like poison that you're just, you know, wrenching out from the depths of your being uh, and puking into a bucket, uh, while mm. at the same time experiencing the the ecstasy of that and the the wild, complete, uninhibited uh, nature of that, uh, and just the shamelessness of everyone being uh, so completely, you know, wrecked in a certain way or vulnerable or um, dirty, basically. Uh, how that is like this uh, very uh, magical uh, point of communion that is also like celebratory and, um, you know, is the essence of, of, uh, I don't know, the juiciness of experience. And so you have that in ayahuasca very readily illustrated and and Vajrayana being a tantric tradition has that as well. Hmm. Yeah, th- this is this is really reminding me of br- bringing up that feeling of of like deep humility, um, mm-hmm. you know, of just being like stripped down to the bone and mm. like like you said, you know, kind of literally vomiting up <laughs> shit, vomiting up all of your you're just full of shit, and you're gonna and and you also shit it right, so it's coming out of both ends, you know, and there's people going out, I, and I never have this for some reason. 
so two things here. First, Congrats. first is first is the is the puking, and I want to come back to that uh, about about humility. Uh, but but so you know, it's coming out of both ends. And you go out, um, and my friend tells the story. She she would go out uh, to shit, you know, after puking, right? And it's all coming out, and um, and then it's in the jungle, right? And so she's just going in this hole, and and then she turned, you know, she got up and turned around. Uh, and, and and shone a light, you know, on the on this offering, <laughs> and in the middle of it was this, you know, just inconceivably beautiful and uh, radiant bug, you know, jungle bug, with you know, two hundred eyes, a million different colors, Amazonian, you know, brilliance, just like sitting in the middle of the shit, relishing it. Just it's so happy, just being right there, you know, in the middle of that offering. Um, <laughs> And, and so it's like this again, this this coemergence of understanding that the like the dirtiest uh, thing, substance, is also can be seen as an offering um, for the most brilliant uh, and um, you know resplendent aspects of Buddha nature, which in this case the bug had Buddha nature and was uh, showing that right. So the, and it, the jung- the thing is the jungle is constantly mirroring the experience. And that's why the context matters so much. Um, the jungle is intelligent and alive, and it is the space of ayahuasca at the same time. Um, and and that's the nature of a mandala as well. It, it, the mandala is the reflection of the experience. Your environment is constantly teaching and communicating to you. Um, you know the very same initiatory insights that you received in the you know in the ceremony. Um, but anyway, so the uh, the first time that first experience I shared, I didn't puke at all, and it was almost as if I was, you know, the insanity of it was my inability to to actually purge, you know, all of this. Mm. Like I was holding on to my neurosis, um, and I think I was just doing the macho thing, basically. But I didn't. I don't think I was even aware of it. So then the next ceremony. Um, the Clorindero starts the whole night with a talk about the importance of purging and how it is an act of humility. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then I, you know, puke all the time. <laughs> <laughs> then you, then you got with the program. smells like ayahuasca and you know the shit smells like ayahuasca and your armpits smell like ayahuasca and it's just it's 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 moving through your lymphatic system or something who knows it's just coming out of every every pore (laughs) i mean on one level it's like why in the world would you know would 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 one find that um Attractive. On the other hand, I mean, I I, I get it in the sense I, I haven't actually worked with ayahuasca, um, but I but I but I can feel the uh, a kind of part of me uh, a draw toward that purification. You know, to to use you know a term that's used in the Theravada a lot, or that purgative you know experience of like letting go of of the holding and the uh, the kind of delusional holding in the body and the way that that you know, um, can be released. And, yeah. um, and it's not always yeah. that way though. I mean, there's, there's lots of experiences that are you know, purely blissful or, you know, very, very, for an extended time. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's purity, there's pure vision, um, you know, without the, <laughs> without the, 
necessary um, insanity or pain or anything like that. Um, so, and it is also progressive. Like a lot of the the purging, you know, happens on a physical level for sure, and 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 that's why it's seen as a medicine that you can actually you know heal the body and its ailments in, in certain in certain ways. Um, and and then on a much deeper level, it's it's a purging of the subtle body. And and it's really like you you're plugging in um, you know you're plugging the subtle body into a current, uh, much like like Shakti you know that kind of ener- energy in the Hindu tradition, but you're plugging in and that plugging in you know flushes out everything that is um, you know clogging the the wires basically, and the winds you know it's really it, it's it's naturally harmonizing them. And so what comes out is afflictive emotions and all of your, all of your neurosis, all of the, yeah, all of the afflictions. And that's, that's progressive. Like it, you don't have to do that forever. It, it, you can actually notice how the medicine is working and you, your subtle body becomes more and more um, light and much, much more present and, um, and afflictive emotions, their intensity is decreased and the, and you also recognize the, the inherent, um, you know, the flow of, of what's behind them, the, the bliss and the, the clarity that's, that's their nature. And so it, the medicine works and that's really important. It's not just this sort of, um, experience where you blast yourself repeatedly. Um, there's a, there's a progression there. And uh, and who knows where it leads, right? Mm. Okay, so I I feel like I, I want to give voice to the anti-authoritarian aspect of of, of myself, and um, and I know that many people listening to this will probably also have that. Um, so there's part of me when I think of ayahuasca as a teacher, or any plant as a teacher, or any teacher as a teacher for that matter. Um, I think about you know the the ways in which all teachers are in some sense limited or, or they, or let's just put it this way. They have their strengths and then they, and then there's their weaknesses. Is that some, how is that, how is that, how do you relate to that in terms of working with say like a plant teacher? Is that, is that something you've considered or thought about? Um, well, it's a question of method um, and method is always related to uh, confusion. In other words, if we didn't have, Confusion. We wouldn't need to use a method to um, liberate that confusion. So they're always they're always there together. Um, and so the question is rather, um, if you're going to use a method, um, how how does that method uh, erase itself uh, in its very use, or eventually, at at some point, how does that method uh, give itself permission to uh, you know be thrown away, basically? Um, and and if and if the method never gives that permission, then uh, it's not a wisdom method. It's uh, it's an idol, you know, or it's it's some sort of um, um, distortion, right? And so that's the case with all methods. And so if you want to use the method of a teacher, um, you know, which is a more of a contributing condition, the, the teacher is something that uh, you know if you choose to use it. Um, can um, actualize um, potential in a much more expedient way. And um, if you don't choose to use it, you know, that's fine too. Um, and ayahuasca, same thing. It's a method that can be distorted, um, but if it's, 
if it's approached in the right way, um, and also from its own side, it erases itself. It, it says, you know, all of this is the nature of your own mind. And you don't need uh, necessarily to take ayahuasca uh, continually to be in touch with that. And so it's really an introduction. And at a certain point, um, it either can be left behind or is used as a method of benefiting others. So it can, and then it's reemployed. And, and now, you know, you, you're, you're doing ceremony because it helps you to benefit others, or you're offering a ceremony because you're benefiting others. Um, so it's a, it's a true method in that sense. Um, and the same with a teacher, you know, if a teacher doesn't at a certain point empower you um, to be just like them, um, and, at a, and if the teacher is holding, you know, a situation of um, authority, in a particular, in a, in a hierarchical way, um, that's not just doing, being done provisionally, but is actually, you know, that's their role and that's who they believe themselves to be and who you believe, you believe them to be. Um, then it gets really distorted. Um, that's not what it, it, it's not erasing itself again, because at a certain point, the method, we get attached to the method and it becomes mm -hmm. its own samsara. And so if it's a wisdom method, it won't, um, it won't allow that. It will either decapitate itself, dissolve itself, um, or make itself uh, redundant. Okay, this is this is interesting. So this, I, I know we're we're going on some tangents here, but I feel like um, you know they're they're really interesting ones. So that that reminds me kind of the the classic raft simile of the Buddha. You know, you know, use the raft to get across mm -hmm. the across the way, and then you know you don't carry it on your head. You you kind of drop it. It also yeah brings up something that I've noticed. I've noticed quite a bit about um, the devotional path, which has not been my primary method, mm -hmm. to use your term. Um, I've I've noticed that for folks who've gone really deep, like and beautiful folks, friends, people I admire a lot, people I appreciate, people that I have a lot to learn from, I think um, that that devotion can be like, especially when it's uh, a core part of their path, it can seem to blind them to seeing critically the, you know, the aspects of their teacher, the, the human being or, or the tradition or what, whatever, whatever that devotion is, you know, the object of that devotion is can kind of like, you know, keep them from being able to see the, you know, the, the, the cacophony or the, you know, the, the diluted aspects of things. And it, you know, I find that very interesting because on the one hand I'm drawn toward devotion and I think it could, and I, I know that it can be really useful. Um, and I see how it can open the heart and provide a certain amount of, uh, faith in the sense of willingness to go into something, um, that can be really scary or, you know, otherwise I wouldn't, you know, be able to, I wouldn't feel like I have the capacity to go into, but that it seems like it also carries with it that very real, um, that very real risk of the method, not erasing itself. Um, and, and I don't know, I've, I, is that something that you've observed as well or something? That oh you've... God. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the current state of affairs for now. It's a very, you know, very hot topic. Um, but Yeah, so just in terms, like the ideal, you know, the 
the aspect of uh, critique is so important. Um, and so the, the ideal is that, you know, it's, it's two things really. First is that you, you only enter into that relationship um, on, in a deep way, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that would be, you know, the student-teacher relationship in a Vajrayana context, um, in a guru-student relationship, that kind of thing. I think we can set aside teachers for now. Everybody appreciates teachers, but it's this, it's this kind of weird category of teacher where the teacher becomes something more than, um, more than that, right? So the ideal is that, that the critical faculty of mind um, progresses to such a, such a depth, uh, and you actually, not only of yourself, but of, your, of the world and of that teacher and of that relationship, that you apply the, the criticism so thoroughly that you come to a point where you recognize that the only basis, you know, uh, if, it, if it works, you know, at a certain point you might say, no, this is not right, this is not for me. So then you, you, you leave, you duck out of it and you, you find a different way. But say it just progresses. Um, at a certain point, you come to the place where um, you recognize that the critical, the only basis of, of criticism is your own habit. Um, and to the best of your knowledge, it seems that it's all coming from you. Then you make the decision to uh, give someone else um, the sort of the, the, the authority of perspective because you trust that they're going to be able to lead you uh, and point out to you um, the, the ways in which your, you know, the, the aspects of your habits and their criticisms, their judgments, their, their um, ha habitual conceptuality, compulsive conceptuality. The teacher is going to point out the basis of that to you. Because you can't do it yourself. You're, all the tools you have are making things worse. Um, and you're, mm. you've reached a point, and it's not a, it may be desperate in a certain sense, but I think it's really important to be you know, a full man, full woman at that point, a fully empowered person where you're not trying to put it, you're not trying to entertain some sort of puerile drama. You're not trying to, not looking for something because you want to get something in return. You're a healthy, whole human being, and you're not looking for that relationship to satisfy some sort of God-shaped hole inside of you. You're okay. You know, you're basically okay. But you see, at the same time, that you're trapped by your own compulsive, compulsive conceptuality. And so you cede the authority of, of, um, of perspective uh, to a teacher, and you say, okay, you know, I tried everything. Life is okay, I know, but you know, at an, another level, this is this is this is pure torture. This is prison. I want out, um, and I've done everything I can to to find my way out, um, and I've gotten pretty far. But you know, everything I do at this point is making things worse. So help me out. And so then that person, you know, if they're authentic, um, will do that, and that's an incredible gift. You know, it's a, it's a gift that is. Beyond beyond thinking, you, by definition, is beyond anything you can conceive of. Um, and when you receive that gift, the gratitude is beyond anything you can conceive of. The joy of that, the the, the gratitude. And so, if that works, you know, sign me up. <laughs> but the problem is, a lot of times there's um, distortions, all sorts of distortions, and people are in it for the wrong reasons. And the teachers are in it for the wrong reasons. 
uh, and you know, along the way, things can go wrong. Um, and for sure, at a certain point, you're, you will be plunged into doubt, you know, and that's really the name of the game. It's the, it's the practice of doubt where you're, um, you know, the thing, the thing that you believe in most is actually where your ego is hanging. And to give that up, um, you know, risks annihilation. And it's uh, it gets it's really tricky business at that point because you have to basically trust this person to kill you, um, and you know that's not, <laughs> not it's not like a, a you know you don't want to be in the middle of an existentialist drama twenty four seven put it that way like you want to be on stage uh, in you know start to no exit indefinitely like that's that's like the, the situation you're in. And so that kind of doubt is it becomes a very profound practice. Um, but at a certain point, there's there's no one left to doubt, and the doubt erases itself, and it's not such a big deal. But you know, you continually come back to deeper levels and deeper challenges of that doubt. Hawkins, you know, great doubt comes to mind here. The bottom of great doubt lies great awakening. Sure. Yeah. If you if you doubt fully, you can awaken fully. Um, when you're talking about distortions, um, you know, is that something you also see as co-emergent? You know, you're talking about confusion yeah. insight, co-emerging, yeah, sure. um, distortion, and I don't know what, what, what distortion would be, uh, co-emerging with. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I think, um, you know, most, most recently, with my teacher, you know, there was a there was a whole um, you know this, this this disclosure of sexual misconduct was just you know just arose and this is something really con common in uh, Buddhist communities all over now. You know, it's just totally um, present. You know, it's coming up at this point, and our community was one of the first <laughs> in you know in this last in this last period of two years or so. Um, to come out, and and I was in the middle of that, and I was you know put in a position to um, really try to um, benefit um, the the community uh, as best I could, and and not um, and obviously couldn't. I was not uh, someone who could walk away from the situation. I, I felt like I needed to be in the middle of it, um, and that place of being in the middle, um, which I think and it's in its most piercing um, you know, manifestation for me was uh, occupying not only an outward role, but also an inward um, orientation of heart and of mind where the doubt, the paradox was uh, the basis of, of every experience where on one hand, there was no, um, no, no doubt about, <laughs> no doubt about harm being done that there was harm um, and then on the other hand having no doubt that my teacher you know to the best of my knowledge for, through years of traveling with him and learning from him uh, had would ever have intended to harm, to harm anyone or was even capable of, of deceiving himself that he wasn't harming anyone like, I didn't doubt that at all yet harm had harm was obvious and so those you know they're not compatible right and so what that does is um, places the mind in a non-conceptual state where, you know, you can, you can make a judgment 
um, and an heir to the side of, of judgment, basically. Um, and you enter into a whole you know, logic of justice and, and all of this uh, conceptual runaway train, basically, um, and, 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 the, and the kind of identification with that that people have. Um, or you can go in the opposite direction and, 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 re- and withhold judgment and say, oh, no, it's, it's, it's ideal. The situation is pure. It's perfect. Teachers are capable of harming anyone, you know, and, and I just won't even go there. Like, it's not, it's not something that I care to, um, that space I care to inhabit. Um, but either of those are conceptual. And the only non-conceptual place is to be holding them simultaneously uh, and having your very being torn open by the tension of that. And in the space of that tear, in the open agonizing and, and also um, blissful space, there is there's insight because um, you're able to relate with the, the situation with complete authenticity without trying to tell some story about it or get some ground and, and have a position on it, but you're feeling the, the, the poignancy of that tension. Um, and then you know, paradoxically, you can actually help the whole situation much more um, because you don't have an agenda and you know, you're, you're able to be open to it. So, you know, it's not an ideal situation. Like this is, this is a lot of like, you know, it, a lot of shit went down basically and continues to go down. And it's, um, it, it's very chaotic, you know, in, in our, in our communities. And there's a lot of dirt. There's a lot of distortion. There's a lot of, um, you know, problem, obviously. And there's no doubt about that. But if we, if we relate with that problem from the standpoint of justice, um, or with some sort of, um, agenda, uh, even a, li- a liberal agenda, a liberal critical agenda, um, it's fine. But if that's our identification, we lose the opportunity. And we lose the opportunity if we also just write it off and say, oh, no, it's just pure. Um, so that space is exactly, you know, that's, it, it illustrates exactly what, what we've been talking about. You know, I would call it co-emergence again. And in one's relationship with the teacher, you know, in this case particularly, there's, there is, it was a final teaching, right? It was <laughs> no doubt that at every moment, you know, in, in my um, course through that whole you know, very unfortunate time, I was so close to my teacher. Not a single moment when, you know, that there wasn't that felt sense of presence. Um, and, and again, that's paradoxical, but at a certain point, there's, you, you don't, the, the doubt is there and it's the ground of being, but it doesn't weigh so much anymore. It's just a context. Um, and the doubt, you know, my doubt was there. I, I doubted whether this is all such a pure thing, right? Um, but at the same time, the doubt was a context for, for resting in that presence and, and, the, and the gratitude of that, you know, paradoxically. And, and the heart-wrenching, um, you know, the heart-wrenching reality of that. Um, so, you know, that's where I'm at. So I don't, maybe, maybe it becomes more pure and, and, and less uh, heart-wrenching. But my experience of, of, you know, of being, of having a teacher and, and employing that method is that it, it, it is such a, an expedient for, for cutting through self-deception. Um, yet at no point does it ever scare you from the reality of, of being a human, right? 
Um, hmm. I'm kind of reminded of uh, something you said at the Buddhist Geeks Conference in your talk about um, at- attachment to um, humanism, I guess, or um, I remember you were talking about um, the, sto- the sort of story of the Buddha and his kind of running across the first person he saw after his awakening, who was like, Hey, what are you? Who are you? Um, you look, you look kind of weird and different, um, or seem different. Are you a, you know, are you a God? No. Are you a human? No. And, um, that's something I've thought a lot about and it's very interesting because on the one hand, it's kind of like bringing into question our, one of our most core identities, um, as a human being, uh, and the kind of you know the the way that that could be seen to be also empty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, so it's same. like it's it's really tricky though because you know we are human. There's so much that you need to really we yes. have, humans have rights, you know, and and that's a very fundamental thing. And 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 justice is a part of that. And that's it, it's in no way um, uh, minimizing the the importance of relative truth and meaning. You know, social justice, for instance, is a good way of thinking of it. Um, but the the for sure it's also it's also emptiness and purity, um, but the way that the human and the divine um, the, the the practice of relating with a, a human teacher um, as a Buddha um, is like being you know setting off on a on a on a journey to a horizon where the human as the earth and the divine as the sky never meet. But the path is always towards that horizon, right? Um, and the integration of that paradox is the practice of that path. Um, and you know, much the same as in you know, in the figure of Christ, that you have the hypostatic union, where God and man are um, inconceivably one. And anything that is you know deifying uh, or humanizing is seen as a an aberration, you know, as a as a heresy. Um, and the same thing in the practice of relating with a teacher on that horizon, which is a horizon of infinite possibility, it's composed of this um, uh, of this inconceivable union of of divine and human, where all of the frailties, all of the shortcomings and vulnerabilities of the human, um, meet all of the inconceivable spacious luminosity of the of the divine. Um, and are stand you know face to face without contradiction, um, and that practicing that integration is the very nature of um, of, the, of that path. Right? So humans fuck up all the time, right? And <laughs> we, you, I mean, yeah, and I'm... and that's. You know, there's this great saying from one of my teachers, Kempel Sultran, uh, and actually, actually I quoted it at Buddhist Geeks, you know, um, nourishing, nourishing, yandak lama which means uh, making mistake after mistake, I travel the unmistaken path. <laughs> mm. Mm. And, uh, and presumably also... the teachers are, are meeting us you know, in that same way. There's also that the sort of Zen Bodhisattva vow, delusions are endless. Mm. I vow to mm-hmm. put an end to them. It's, it's, it has that same it's bold, quality yeah. to it. It takes a, a really a mind that can go beyond um, you know, concept, basically, you know, un- unthinkable. And 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 yet, 
I, I gather part of what you're saying too is like that's not a necessarily a um, a passive place. It's also actions can and need to flow out of that. Um, you used this from bodhicitta earlier. You know what what is the appropriate response um, to the situation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Still, 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 there needs to be one, even if it's no response. Yeah, and there's and there's really no choice. I mean, you're you're plunged into um, the, the dynamic uh, aliveness of of the mind. You can't avoid it. Um, there's no there's no cessation. Basically, there's no there's no abiding in cessation. So you're constantly pushed mm-hmm. along, and you you know because of that, you can either make it uh, hellish or blissful. You know, you can <laughs> you can arrange things in a certain way, but um, you know, there's no avoiding it. So just to loop back to the original prompt here of the ayahuasca experience of ayahuasca. Um, I know that that was a really interesting. I appreciate you bringing that up and going into that some. Um, yeah. Just curious if there's any, any threads that you want to kind of reconnect back yeah, to, to ayahuasca and the experience of I think that. There's a really, that's a real wholesome memory that I had. Um, I think I mentioned it to you a few conversations ago, but at, at a certain point, everyone in the circle, um, one person goes into the middle of the circle and then everyone sings and prays for them. Um, and the, the curandero also comes up to them and does some purification rituals and, and also prays for them very intensively and, and in a very focused way um, and very palpably. And it's a really, you know, very special um, type of blessing that you know, everyone is holding you in their, um, you know, in their altruistic heart wishes and, and, and presence. And for me, the experience of that was, it was this um, deep, deep exhaustion um, and, and um, feeling of poverty and, and feeling of um, just like, yeah, it's just being malnourished and exhausted and, and then in the middle of that, like, and he was like bopping me on the head with this, uh, it's called chakapa. It's like this uh, um, frond, you know, um, plant frond that he was uh, sort of keeping rhythm uh, to his song by bopping me on the head with this, <laughs> this thing. And so, uh, you know, and that was like very much like in an empowerment where my deep feeling of, um, of, of, of poverty and, and, and weakness um, I could feel growing inside of my heart this a light, you know, this just sort of candle flame that just would grow and grow and grow. Um, and then I would say, ah, like I am um, capable of holding this light uh, and giving it to others. And then it would, and then I would crash again. And then, it, and then it would come back and I would build it up or it would be built up again. And seeing how the strength of the heart uh, and the, the, the courage of the heart was connected with um, the prayers of everyone around me and just seeing how, you know, on one hand, bodhicitta is something that is, is, is fostered in a community um, and also can be supported through the blessing of prayer and ritual um, and um, just really appreciating that. And it's, it's totally wholesome and, um, you know, it's something Vajrayana about it particularly, but at the same time, it's the basis of everything. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network 
is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.